0: Scripture reading, which is the gospel according to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11. It's on page 869 if you're using that blue Bible. Luke 11. You'll be able to pick this up quickly what's going on in this passage. Now, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. That's verse 14. This is where we are. Now, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls, and if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so now we go to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, or 10, 1 Chronicles chapter 10, as we continue our new series through 1 and 2 Chronicles. We've dealt with the first nine chapters, and at the end of chapter 9 is this genealogy of Saul that Brings us then to chapter 10. So, chapter 10, verse 1, and I, and I would hope that you keep your Bibles open as we go through uh, this sermon today. Now, the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, and Abinadab, and Amachishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, "'Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me.' But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell, down, uh, fell upon his, his sword and died. Thus Saul died." he and his three sons, and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that the the army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. And as often happens in a harsh combat, it's the day of celebration the next day, and so here come the conquerors, the Philistines, and they desecrate and maul all the bodies. They come to Saul and his sons, and they decapitate, the bodies, they take the heads and they go to their temple, their god Dagon, and set the heads up in that temple to celebrate the good news of victory, as they say it. But there's a group, valiant and honorable men of Jabez Gilead, who go under the cover of dark and they go and rescue the bodies of Saul and his sons and they go give him as much of a proper barrel as they can possibly give him. But then comes verses 13 through 14 of chapter 10. It's God's own analysis of Saul. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with Yahweh and that he did not keep the command of Yahweh and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And Yahweh your God said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over my people. And so all the elders of Israel, Israel came to the king of Hebron and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before Yahweh. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of Yahweh by Samuel. And the very first thing he does is he goes after a city called Jabus, that will later be called Jerusalem. A stronghold of the God resistors. And he goes in and he actually conquers the stronghold of the God resistors. You should be hearing Jesus' story in Luke here. And so what happens, verse 9, and David became greater and greater for Yahweh of hosts was with him. What I've read to you from the Gospel of Luke and what I've read to you and summarized for you from 1 Chronicles 10 through the first part of 11, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now, Lord God, as we move into the action of First and Second Chronicles, lift our hearts and draw us close So that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So do please keep your Bibles open, your Bible apps, whatever you're using there to 1 Chronicles 10 and 11. And the sermon notes are in the back of the worship guide for those of you who are visiting. There's sermon notes back there with lots of space to write notes. And some questions for your families today for lunch or supper or some time to work through those. Now, I use a, an evangelism tool that's called the Two Ways to Live. It actually comes from Matthias Media out of Australia, of Sydney, Australia, a conservative Anglican group there. And it's a delightful little tool. Some of you have seen me use it. Uh, I actually taught a class 75 million years ago here, something like that, using that Two Ways to Live. So that evangelism approach, after it it begins with laying out God's good creation, and then it moves to the story of the fall and sin and suffering and death and God's redeeming remedy in Jesus, and it ends with a challenge. There are two ways to live. You can continue doing what you've always done, which is rebellion to God, and therefore in the end is the way of doomed death, or... Or you can latch on to God's remedy. You can submit to Jesus and rely upon Him. It just lays out the two ways to live. And if you've been in the adult class recently, that's what I used in the class. We talked about Jesus and the atonement. Well, my friends, that same kind of moment is popping up here and will pop up many times in First and Second Chronicles. And this is one of those moments. There's two ways to live. Now, before launching into 19 straight chapters on David and David's reign, his feats, and his enterprises, notice that the spirit-guided chronicler or historian brings us out of the blue. You're not prepared for this. Chapters 1 through 9, you're hearing, he, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and so was the son of so and so was the son of so and so and he fathered so-and-so, and fathered so-and-so, and fathered so-and-so. You're not prepared for this, but all of a sudden, chapter 10 comes, and we're plopped right in the middle of Saul's life. Actually, we're plopped, plopped right in the middle of the end of Saul's life. It's out of the blue. We get plopped right in there. And that suddenness is attention-grabbing, which is one reason the chronicler is doing that. The other reason that we begin chapter 10 at the end of Saul's life may not at first be quite so obvious, but we are back to a two ways to live moment. Just like we, back in chapter 5, when we looked at Reuben, Gad, and half tribe of Manasseh and two seasons in their life, one in which they were God dependent, one later they became God snubbers, and that was kind of the point. There's two ways to live. This is the way of life. Take it. And so remember what Chronicles is being written for. It's written for those who have been in exile for uh, 150 years or so. And so for the disheartened and discouraged folks that are returning from exile who are slinking their way back into the land, then the message is intended to say clearly to them, not that way, but this way. But also... The whole section starting here in chapter 11 to the end of 1 Chronicles chapter 29 is aimed at rekindling the people of God's hope and anticipation that one day a shoot from the stump of Jesse will come forth, as Isaiah put it in Isaiah 11.1. 1. And so they are to yearningly be looking for the one who is like David. So then, we begin with Things Fall Apart. It's chapter 10, 1 through 12, Things Fall Apart. And that's a great title for a point, for a sermon, but I'm going to tell you, I stole it from one of my favorite authors. It's one of her books, Flannery O'Connor. She wrote a book called Things Fall Apart, and I love that title. And that's what you have in chapter 10, Things Fall Apart. So very quickly, as you work through chapter 10, there's actually a pattern to it. Verse 1, Israel runs... Verse 2, the sons die, Saul's sons die. Verse 3 through 6, Saul dies. Verse 7, Israel runs, right? So the rest of Israel runs. And then verses 8 through 10, the Philistines desecrate. It's a very simple, grievous story. And there's an exception, and the exception is down in verse 11 and 12. The honorable men of Jabesh Gilead, they come at great risk to their lives... To, to gather up the corpses, the bodies, the decapitated bodies of Saul and his sons, and to give them an honorable burial. And it's interesting that this story shows up here. It shows up also in, um, in the story of Saul back in First and 2 Samuel. This is one of those stories that has a similar flavor to the story of the woman in the New Testament. The woman who came and anointed Jesus beforehand for his burial. And Jesus said of that woman and what she did, it's in all the gospel accounts. He says, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It has that same flavor. Every time we talk about Saul's death, we will end up needing to talk about the honorable men of Jabesh Gilead. And yet, clearly things Fall apart. And the reason why the things fell apart is stated clearly and concisely in the next two verses, verse 13 and 14, because Saul was faith flouting. He broke faith. The reason why you come to the end of Saul's life, and as grievous as it is, it's because of what Saul did. He was faith breaking, faith flouting. This whole section, verse 13 and 14, clears up the clutter of all of the rationalizing, of all of the excuse-making, of all of the spin-doctoring. Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with Yahweh. In that, he did not keep the command of Yahweh, and he consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Notice in that statement, there's just no wiggle room allowed. There's no truck for lawyering up. These two verses are like a biblical knuckle sandwich. Something like a divine jab to the solar plexus for the purpose of knocking the wind of all of our excuse-making and downplaying out of our lungs so that we will clearly see what the fault is, but we'll also see who this God is and what he requires of us. We're really good at excuse making. We actually talked about it in Sunday school class this morning. Because we're human, we're great at excuse making. Right? And we know how to shift the blame and we know how to push the blame on somebody else. All of my problems are because of Randy Willingham, I want you to know. It's easy to do. It feels so good. It makes me feel more righteous than I am. And notice that the chronicler comes back around and will not let God's people do that. He's pointing out Saul was at this place because he broke faith. But as I said, verse 13 and 14 are showing us who this God is and what he requires of us. It's very much what you hear, for example, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism in number three. I did this the other day, I'm going to do it again. What do First and Second Chronicles primarily teach us? First and second chronicles primarily teach us what we are to believe about God and what duty God requires of man. so the people of God who are now coming out of exile as they hear and read this story they're being shown that what got them into their hot mess, what got them into trouble what got them into exile is that they were acting just like their first king breaking faith that's what you hear when you go back to the story at the end of chapter 5, 1 Chronicles 5 and verse 26 when it says Or verse 25, excuse me. But they broke faith with the God of their fathers and whored after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. It's what you hear... When you get to chapter 9, that second sentence of verse 1, and Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. What got them into their hot mess is they were acting just like their first king who was all about getting what he needed to get and doing whatever it took to get it. And it didn't matter that he disobeyed God or ignored God or whatever. He wanted to do what he wanted to do and he was going to do it by Geminis and that's what he did. And they acted just like him, which is what got them in their hot mess. And if they wanted to know how to make sure that that hot mess never happened again, then this brings them to the primary place to start. Don't walk in the steps of Saul. Instead, turn your back on that way. And by implication... Turn your face toward your great God and Savior and his Messiah, chapter 11. And so chapter 10 makes chapter 11 stand out in splendor and hopefulness. It's where things fill up. So things fell apart in chapter 11, or chapter 10. Things now fill up, chapters 11, 1 through 3. Notice how it starts. Then, you just got done with Saul's demise and that he broke faith. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Then, and that then relays a contrastive connection to chapter 10. Unlike Saul, chapter 10, where he was experiencing diminishment and defeat, David, chapter 11, 1 through 3 is being filled up. And it's at this anointing. It's when he's being anointed at Hebron. And notice all the language there, but he's anointed at Hebron. And those of you who are astute, and you are astute Bible readers, you know that David was actually anointed twice. The first time he was anointed as king was at Hebron over Judah and Simeon and part of the Levites. And then seven and a half years later, he was made king of all of Israel. But I think what's going on here is that the editors, economizing as they are, is just taking that first anointing at Hebron and letting it stand in for the fact that David will eventually become king of all of Israel. Further, notice that unlike Saul, in his faith-breaking life, where he experienced decline, diminishment, defeat, and the disapproval of God, David, chapter chapter 11, 1 through 3, undergoes God's pleasure, undergoes God's promises, undergoes God's prospering. Even when Saul was king, David, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. Yahweh, your God, even said, you will be the shepherd of my people. And so the end of verse 3, and David the king, was king over Israel according to the word of Yahweh by Samuel. David contrasted to Saul, David is experiencing God's pleasure, God's promises, and God's prospering. Now, why would the writer, why would the chronicler put it this way? Well, I think there's a hinted question that's lingering here. It's that two ways. Around which star do you want to throw your lasso? Do you want to throw your lasso around the faith-breaker, the God-snubbing faith-breaker Saul, or do you want to throw your lasso around the star of the God-dependent, faith-keeping David? It's putting us back on our heels. There's two ways to live. One ends in death and demise and diminishment. One has the pleasure of God, the promises of God, etc., which one do you want? Well, anybody in their right mind would say, well, I want that one over there. Right. That's the point. And so then David and David's people, now that they're filling up, David and David's people are now fighting fine. They're fighting fine. And that's verses 4 through 9. And verses 4 through 9, here's the first example that shows the polar opposite of what Saul went through. In both stories, if you don't understand this, and I'm going to help you. In both stories, Saul and then David are up against God resistors. Philistines didn't want Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to rule them. Philistines and Jebusites—that's the chapter eleven, verse four through. Nine, neither the Philistines nor the Jebusites wanted the kingdom of God to grow. They didn't want God's Messiah to reign over them. They didn't want anything to do with God's kingdom. And so they are god resistors, Philistines and Jebusites, both. But notice that David defeats the Jebusites, those god resistors, and he captures their capital city. And so in verse 5, he took the stronghold. Verse 7, he lived in the stronghold. Verse 8, he built up the stronghold. Hmm. That's kind of the picture that Jesus lays out as he's describing his launching of the kingdom in earnest as he fights against the demonic god resistors. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Already, here in 1 Chronicles 11, 4 through 9, already a bright day is dawning anew on God's people because it's dawning anew on God's anointed one. And it's dawning anew through God's anointed one. And that's what's summarized in verse 9. David became greater and greater because he had a great political action committee that put him in power. Is that what it says? David became greater and greater because he wrote lots of books and got published and became a big conference speaker. Is that what it says? David became greater and greater. Why? Yeah, say it out loud. Come on, girl, say it out loud. Okay, she won't do it. Because Yahweh of hosts was with him. You should be thinking grace alone and Christ alone. And you're right. You're right in there. Notice that. So new day is dawning for God's people because it's dawning on God's anointed one for His kingdom. And if God's anointed one is becoming greater and greater for Yahweh of hosts was with Him, then that means that also the people of God are getting greater and greater because Yahweh of hosts is with them. My friends, David being favored by the Lord, is overflowing to the Lord's people. David's triumph becomes their triumph. David's success makes them successful. David's satisfying walk with God spills over unto them. And those of you who know your theology know where I'm going with that at some point. Because that's great news. This relationship between the king and the country between the ruler and the ruled will play out all the way through First and 2 Chronicles. And so there's 1 Chronicles 10, 1 through 11, 9. Let me try to dock this ship. It's going to take us a while, so hang in there. First off, my friends, in this section, we see the principle that we will hear in 2 Chronicles 2020, the last part of 2 Chronicles 2020, we will see it being laid out, and we're also seeing its opposite. So give me your glasses. Come on, everybody, get your 2020 on. Here we go. Come on, kids, help me out, because the parents aren't doing it. You need to help me out. Give me some grace here. Come on, put your glasses on. So you see clearly believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe as prophets, and you will succeed. That's how you see your way through the future. It's 2 Chronicles twenty twenty. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe as prophets and you will succeed. And which one of these two is doing that? Saul or David? David. David's trust is in the Lord. And notice he's the one being established. What's Saul doing? He's the polar opposite. He is not believing the Lord and he's not listening to the Lord's word through his prophets. And so guess what? He's not established. That principle is being hammered out for us story after story. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. So this is meant to reassure that returning ragtag remnant of Israel coming out back home. That God's pattern was experienced in the positive and negative way, good news, bad news way, was experienced by their first and second king. And they can bank on it for themselves. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he reap, Galatians 6-7. And as we heard before, Paul tells us in Romans fifteen four that this was written for us to instruct us and to spawn in us endurance and encouragement to give us hope. The offer is there. If we will turn our backs on Saul's way and embrace David's way, and for us Christians, the greater son of David's ways, then we will know God's stabilizing power in the church, in our denomination of Christ's church, and in our lives. You heard it in the call to worship. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. And if that doesn't convince you, how about the words of the greater son of David when he said this? I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. In the world you will be faced by god resistors and so forth. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Further, we're presented here the Saul way and the David way. We're presented here the God-snubbing way and the God-dependent way. And I think Eugene Peterson displays this for us, how this works out in our day. In a book he wrote in 2007, Eugene Peterson was the one who put together the message. Anybody know what I'm talking about, right? He put it this way in a book called The Way of Jesus, quote, North American Christians, this is 2007. North American Christians are conspicuous for going along with whatever the culture decides is charismatic, successful, influential, whatever gets things done, whatever can gather a crowd of followers hardly noticing that these ways and means are at odds with the clearly marked way that Jesus walked and called us to follow. Doesn't anybody notice that the ways and the means taken up, often enthusiastically, are blasphemously at odds with the way Jesus leads his followers? Why doesn't anyone notice? The ways and means promoted and practiced in this world are a systematic attempt to substitute human sovereignty for God's rule. What a great statement. And so tracking along this line a bit more, but veering off just a little bit, notice that in both chapter 10 and 11, that God's people are confronted by God-resisters. This is not about ethnic cleansing. These are opposed to God, Philistines and Jebusites. They did not want God's kingdom to expand. They did not want it to grow. They did not want it to flourish. But notice there's two different results here. Because of Saul's faith-breaking, notice what God did. Because of Saul's faith-breaking, God allowed his special dominion to take a setback. God allowed his special dominion to take a setback in Saul's faith-breaking. Whereas through David's faith-keeping, God furthered his dominion. Uh, There's a lesson here for us. We almost always, when we face difficulties, immediately pull out the persecution card and squeal to the world, victims, we're victims, we're martyrs, we're persecuted. But the story of Saul and David should make us stop and before we ever pull out that persecuted martyr card, step back and say, God, why is your kingdom facing a setback? Is it possible that we're actually at fault pursuing the Saul way? consuming all that our world puts out and following those patterns and so forth. Just think about Eugene Peterson's statement. Is it possible that the setback is our fault? I think that's the first place we should always go and not throw out the persecution martyr card until it's very clear that that's the case. This story should hit us hard. But even more than that, it would have been a message to these returning exiles that they too, like Saul and David, they too will be surrounded by god resistors. Those of you who were in the Nehemiah sermon series that I did, Sunday evenings, Rebuilding After a Hot Mess, you'll know what I'm talking about. But all there there in Nehemiah and even in Ezra, God's people come back and they're surrounded by god resistors like Tobiah, Sanballat, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of the enemies. And they're never promised a rose garden. Instead, what happens there and what we're being told here is keep faith, keep faith with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he will be with you. The message is there for us. We too are going to be and are surrounded by God resistors, and they will use force, they will use legislation, they will use the judiciary they will use the media, they will use the social media, they'll use educational institutions, they'll use corporations, they'll use foundations, they'll use shame and ridicule, or worse, to oppose the kingdom of Jesus. Okay, what do we do? Our hope is in the name of the Lord. You heard me at the beginning of the service. Actually, before after the announcements, I quoted to you Second Chronicles fourteen eleven, King Asa's prayer. Pretty phenomenal. Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no strength. Help us, O oh Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. O oh Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. Our hope is in the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, when Jesus came out of the tomb, body, blood, bones, toenails and hair, never subject to mortality or misery again. When he came forth triumphant, having crushed the serpent's head, what did Jesus say? He's told his disciples, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Our hope is in the name of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean we should expect and we should never expect instantaneous triumphalism. There will still be societal IEDs that will blow us up. There will still be institutional firefights. There will still be wounds, concussions, and hardships until Jesus returns riding forth with a two-edged sword projecting from His mouth, treading out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. But until that day, we're to look to and follow the King who leads us, faithfully leads us onward, upward, and outward. And we have to remember that that path he leads us on is often, often goes through the cross before it gets to the crown. It often goes through the gore before it gets to the glory. Therefore, having been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance The race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, despising the shame, is set down at the right hand of God, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Nevertheless, success is inevitable. You are, if you trust in Jesus, you are on the right side of history. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Because Jesus is on the right side of history, if you want to put it that way. Success is inevitable. But until that day, we keep faith, and in the words of the Apostle Paul, the Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But lastly, my friends, that deep connection between the king and the country that I brought up, that deep connection between the ruler and the ruled, What belongs to the king spills over to us. His righteousness before the father cloaks us, his people. His death as a sinner becomes death for sin with us. His rising justified and vindicated turns out to be for us. His being the Son in whom the Father is well-pleased transfers to those who submit to Him and rely upon Him. As with kings, so with country. As the ruler, so with the ruled. And so you heard in our assurance of pardon, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life the wrath of god remains on them two ways which will you take and so my friends the holy spirit inspired his story and is saying to us this is the real genuine revival the way of real genuine revival and reformation here is where reclamation and return happen and so walk in it for it is the good way and you will find rest for your souls or hear it in God's own words, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and will heal their land. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, for your great love for us. Love in which you challenge us to correct us. Lord, may we hear your correction. But your great love that also shows us what you have done for us and the better way. For all of us here, I pray that we would always, always, always have our hope and confidence in the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. That our trust would always, always, always be there. And from that then, we would walk forth with endurance and encouragement. And we would always have hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.